It's um, I felt like a really um, good day um, to practice together. It's uh, coming to the end of uh, just really the first full retreat day, although we sort of were slowly going into it yesterday. And um, it feels like uh, just the quality of uh, presence and uh, offering to help everyone helping to uh, keep um, the retreat space going with uh, the chores and the supports and the practice. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for such mm. really uh, mm. beautiful yoga session. We're all very appreciative. Our bodies are very happy <laughs> to be stretched um, and to have such a kaleidoscope of weather again, <laughs> from summer to rain to storm, back to beautiful skyscapes. It's a very... Um, Powerful the, the weather here in the skies and the landscape, how it changes. It's a very powerful reflection on change because um, it is so changeable. And uh, tonight I'd like to reflect a little bit on, um, on how ways that we can consider, ways that we can contemplate to support our practice, particularly this, uh, this reality of how changeable our experience actually is, or how life actually is, and aligning and attuning with that. And then as we do, it supports one of the very foundational practices of the path, which is uh, to have the attitude of um, simplification, letting go, renunciation, these kinds of um, inner perspective, this inner perspective which aligns with, uh, with reality, the reality of how ephemeral actually and ungraspable actually life really is even though it impacts, we're so impacted by the flow of life and it's so powerful and it's so, so um, tangible to us in so many different ways. Our relationships and, and the cultures we live in and the, the histories we live within and the social context, family contexts, the, the changes of the seasons and the political context, all of it is very very powerful, powerfully impacting, but actually when we intersect the moment with mindfulness and awareness as we've been doing, we realize actually even the thoughts that we have uh, about ourselves and life are very ephemeral, very changeable, very elusive. So actually to even talk about letting go is one step beyond an alignment with reality, because we only really have to let go of things that we <coughs> held on to. But if we actually start to align with this, 
fluidity that life actually is, then then uh, there's not there's a lessening of the the holding, and then the need to somehow let things flow in the way that they are going to flow, however that happens to be, whether it's pe- uh, people, loved ones, the weather, our own body, our moods, the flow of life itself. The first three foundational, what's called parameters, or very um, parameters are it's a, a word that means spiritual perfections are very strong qualities that we can consciously develop that support us in life in a very wholesome way there are ten of them classically in, in the Buddhist um, the structures of contemplation well, in some schools there are six but anyway they sort of d- distill into the same kind of uh, qualities the first Three, which is dana's generosity, the second one sila, sort of ethical living or restraint of from restraining the impulses that will lead to a breach of of um, harmonious living, and the third one is called nikama, which I'd like to 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 reflect a bit about tonight, which is which means usually translated as renunciation. It's to do with this simplification, with this letting go, um, with this orientating the mind, the attention more and more into the present and allowing ourselves to lessen our hold and our grasp. Or really another way of looking at it is understanding that we don't really own things (laughs) or people. Um, They're sort of temporarily with us, <laughs> even our own bodies, even our thoughts, even our feelings that we assume so much are ours, that, that this is a sort of temporary arrangement. Sometimes this third parameter of nikama renunciation is, is defined as the um, relinquishment of uh, of the force of the forces of greed, delusion, hatred, lust, the kind of energies that entangle us as human beings, being emancipated, the mind is emancipated from those kinds of constructs, and therefore already the practice of being able to renounce the 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 pull to be shaped by those energies, already we're moving towards this freeing ourselves from from suffering or from pain or from difficult consequences that tend to appear when we get embroiled in those kinds of energies. But if you um, go back to, again, the Sanskrit root of this word of nikama, which is uh, nikamati, Nikamati, which this word ni is also connected with words like nibida, which means disenchantment, or niroda, which means cessation, things ceasing, or nibbana, which means peace or cooling. And nikamati has this in Sanskrit, it means both to leave behind and to go forth to leave behind and to go forth. 
And in a very simple way, this is what this practice is always asking us to do, always inviting us to do, that to enter the Dharma or the stream of the Dharma, to go beneath the way, the cognitive framework of our life and how we hold that, which is very hooked into the momentum of us, me, with a past and a future that I'm going towards, to actually sort of drop beneath that into the flow of the, in a way, slightly more mysterious Dharma, implies this this, uh, leaving behind and going forth, both as an act from day to day, really, or an act that we can contemplate through the, the seasons of our life, but in our practice it's also a training that we apply in every moment, as much as we can, of course. <laughs> and it's that training that supports this establishment of what we've been doing today, this establishment of, of mindfulness. To, to, to leave behind isn't a rejection or Renunciation isn't a, a judgment about life or what we're with, or you know, it's not a, it's it's not an aversion, which is another construct that's problematic. But it's just a it's just a, a willingness to to in a way release out of whatever we're holding. And, you know, that sounds simple, but it's a very hard move for us to make. So, you know, Ajahn Chah would often talk about it, you know, if if when people would come into the monastery um, wanting to get something, he'd say, no, no, you haven't come here to get something, you've come here to let go of things. Or even more bluntly, he would say, have you come here to die? Because that's how he was, you know. (laughs) No, I've come to get enlightened. (laughs) So this this, this is uh, this contemplation of releasing, leaving behind is is enhanced actually through the reflection on, on death. And not, again, in a morbid way, or not in a way to depress us or frighten ourselves, but as just to become more realistic um, and, and able to, to more um, allow that reality into the mandala of our contemplation. Because it is reality, this, uh, things are always passing the moments, our experiences, even our loved ones, or our circumstance, and inevitably even at some point one day this body and this life that we've, that we've known and cherished and struggled through. So in a Buddhist contemplation, there's an encouragement to really bring this close to us, this reality of death. You know, not, not to freak out, but just to allow it to, to be here. So it's, uh, it's a bit like, uh, like when we go down the road here at the Uzumkuru River, 
It's so so beautiful to jump in that river, but it's very cold sometimes. It's not actually very cold, but it's colder than when you're standing outside of the river. It's actually delicious when you jump in, but at first you think, no, I, I, you know, I, there's a lot of resistance. You don't want to actually become uncomfortable, but once you jump in and you swim around a bit and you come out of the river, it's, you're so enlivened. Your body's tingling, you feel great. You think, wow, that was really fantastic. And in the same way, perhaps not immediately, but the same way allowing that contemplation of death to come close to us is a bit like entering the river of reality. It's not comfortable, but it, it potentially enlivens us to the preciousness of the time we have, to the moments that we have, because as is said, and as the contemplation is often encouraged, that our life is like a candle in the wind. We don't, this is an analogy, this wasn't from Elton John, <laughs> it's actually from the Buddha, but anyhow, <laughs> however the Dharma gets to us, but our life is, and things are, and circumstances are, our ability to maybe have, you know, wealth, or relationships, or love, or parents with us, or children. I mean, all of this is a candle in the wind. There's a flame in the wind. You know, the, un, the really unpredictable and uncontrollable, for whatever reason, wind can come, and in a moment, things can change radically, irreversibly. And so Ajahn Chah said, this, this practice is to help us be prepared. These very small moments of just in our daily life, practicing mindfulness in our daily retreat, is helping us to be prepared when something big impacts us. So that we don't just completely collapse or crumble or freak out but that we're able to maybe have some ability to engage what has presented or what presents and to use, use whatever it is to awaken ourselves to reality. So it's the leaving behind, but also it's implying that in every death, in every ending, in every even moment that's passing, there's an opportunity for going forth. And this word is used in a very particular way in, in monastic training, because when you actually take ordination, the word for ordination literally means to go forth. Upasampada, you take Upasampada, you go forth into something new. And you don't have to put a robe on and go through a ceremony to go forth. In fact, the Dharma is always inviting us to go forth. In a particular kind of way, we're not going forth by holding and grasping to security so much, although we, you know, we, you know, it's natural to do that, and perhaps it's optimum to do that in some ways and strategies that we need to negotiate life, but at a deeper level, yes, we can do that, we can strategize and for the optimum situation for ourselves, our families, our community, but, but to realize that if we don't have this deeper perspective, that going forth from a strategy 
Actually, sometimes it's both precarious because we can't always control the outcome, but it's also associated with stress, but also it can be also limiting. You don't know what can appear if we go forth in a much more open way. Mm. You can allow maybe for something to come through, something to happen that is beyond our strategies. We don't know yet because we can't, it's outside of our box. So in the dying, in the willing, the renunciant, it's actually, it's not a dying into a cold and remote and difficult place. It's a, it's a relinquishment into a trust of life, into a flow of life and a flow of reality and mystery that is, has potential to present an opening or a way or to carry us beyond <coughs> the cognitive ways and the ways that we filter our experience for the optimum ability for us to have our security. So in a way that going forth implies a willingness to be insecure, a willingness to, as Ajahn Chah, is to allow things to be uncertain and to tolerate that. And you know, this is this practice implies that we that we um, allow ourselves to taste that uncertainty. I'd like to uh, read a piece from a very dear friend of ours who um, is South African, and this is from many many years ago when we were teaching a retreat at the Buddhist retreat center. As you know, those that live close. Here in this country, here in South Africa, no, that's just down the road. And we were um, guiding teachers there for about seven years, and we used to teach regularly there. And um, one day, this uh, friend was on a on a retreat as a practitioner. She was on a retreat that we were teaching, and then she went outside of the boundary of the Buddhist retreat center, crossed the road, and went for a walk with uh, another practitioner into the local forest, which actually is usually advised against, but they wanted to just go out for a walk. I was walking with a friend in the forest when we realized we were being followed, and we knew at once the man was dangerous. He caught up, stopped us, and asked me to go with him. As I refused and turned away, he grabbed my neck and pushed me to the ground. My friend threw a log at him, which gave me a chance to get on my feet, and we ran. But something told me to stop. I sensed that the chase was strengthening him, casting us as predator and prey in an ancient story with an inevitable ending. To stop that story's momentum, I stopped running, turned to face him and shouted, What do you want? In that moment, everything changed in a way that is impossible to describe. For the first time in my life, I was entirely without fear, knowing with utter conviction that no matter what this man did to me, he could never hurt me. As he grabbed my wrist, I was overwhelmed by a powerful love for him and for everything. The forest around us burst into radiant, pulsating life, as if the trees were on fire with the same love. 
In this indescribable experience, a few sensations remain clear. Everyone who had ever loved me came to mind, and I felt their presence there among the trees. My protection was beyond question, and I was overcome by a joyful peace I had never known. When the man held a knife to my throat and told me to lie down and be quiet, his sadness ached in me. A mother watching her small child hurt himself through ignorance might feel the same way. I wanted him to stop endangering himself in this way, not with any urgency or fear, but simply because I could not see, but simply because I could see that his self-torment was unnecessary. I spoke words I don't remember choosing. You're a man. You're a good man. You don't hurt people. Whether or not he understood, I felt his relief as he too realized he didn't have to do what he was doing. His grip on my wrist softened, but I stayed with him, holding his hand and repeated the words, You're a man, a good man. By now my friend had found a heavy branch as a weapon and was quietly making it clear she would put up a fight. I released my hand, he lowered the knife and my friend and I walked away. That night the man came to me in a dream. He wanted to show me something, a wound in the side of his back. It was a deep fatal gash, raw and bleeding, and I knew it had been there for a long, long time. With the same love I had known in the forest, I put my hand on the wound. Afterward, when I told the story to others, they commented on our courage. My friend showed extraordinary courage, but what happened to me was something different. It was grace. And it is everyone's. I like this. Um, it's a true story. Um, we <coughs> saw um, uh, the woman shortly after this happened, and her therapist said she was repressing things because <laughs> she didn't feel more upset or. Uh, more depressed or more angry but um, this was many years ago and I, we asked whether we could share this story because it really does um, it really does uh, describe what can sometimes happen in these moments you know um, hopefully one won't be ever have to face such a a life-defining moments, death-defining moments, you know, so where one is um, under um, such threats. But with this ability to perhaps open and as a way of life and keeping this reflection of being able to trust something beyond our fears and our, our desires and our upsets and our strategies and our aims and ambitions to trust something else, some other flow, then there can be something, a potential for something to emerge that has, I love the way that she talks about this moment of grace. 
a moment of beauty, a moment of quantum shift, a moment of opening, a, mo- a moment of maybe understanding things in a whole other way that we never really saw before, a moment of freedom. The freedom, as it said, of nothing left to lose. So rather than wait until things are ripped away or wait until we you know, hold on for the last moment, to be able to already prepare, this is a, the contemplation that uh, we can bring to mind frequently as we chanted tonight the frequent reflections, five subjects for frequent rec- recollection, to already uh, reflect, I am of the nature to die, this body, but also this I, this, uh, this I, this person with all our histories and all of our hopes and all of the things that we hope to achieve, which is wonderful. It's amazing, it's, it's beautiful that we can be this I. <laughs> but this I is also subject, like everything, to, to passing. I am the na- of the nature to die. And all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, all that I've cherished, it doesn't mean that we stop cherishing, but we don't own what we cherish or who we cherish. Everything goes its own way. And so with that, with that contemplation, we can just hold things more lightly, hold ourselves, hold our body, hold my life, hold our loved ones, hold our enemies, even this great earth, it's a time that we live in. We, we, and there's the great possibility that many of the structures that we're familiar with that, that sort of hold the world together uh, will fall apart. Many, many species are dying. Many um, environmental um, ecologies are being changed irreversibly through the impact of how we're living on this earth very radically and very fast and probably within most of our lifetimes we will see already seeing huge impacts and through the results of of, um, of our unsustainable lives and so we can't assume at all that, um, that there's any certainty actually even any continuity in the ways that we've understood life to be for centuries, for millennia for us as human beings this is a very very um, intense times that we're moving into and a lot of what's already been set in motion is irreversible and maybe it doesn't impact us yet but it will inevitably as many countries like for example a country like Syria which has been uh, sort of caught in the most horrific as we know I don't even know how to describe it exactly, a civil war, but a conflict that uh, two years or a few years before that erupted that um, through the impact of the change of climate and the overall warming of the planet 
Assyria lost 60% of its fertile land and as a result of that lost 80% of the cattle. And so underneath what presented as a fearful struggle which started and was initiated by peasants walking on the, uh, on the capital because they had nowhere else left to go and putting pressure on the system and then the reaction to oppress and so on underneath what appears to be a political situation and in many ways it is but underneath a lot of what we're seeing now is a, a fight for resources, dwindling resources all over the place Mm. and we're also seeing an increase of instability within the the weather patterns it's a good job you're not in America now I was reading in Minnesota today it's 50 degrees Mm. Fahrenheit below freezing below zero below zero below zero unseasonable cold and meanwhile in Australia it's burning up forest fires hurricanes in countries like the Philippines Hurricane Haiyan which left still millions of people displaced so all of this is part of ours is not apart from us. This is connected to us and it's connected to how we live and it's connected to the underlying inability for us as human beings to live from this place of, of release, of letting go, of, of tolerating uncertainty and, and change and being able to hold things lightly and, and our inability to renounce, to really live more simply and to not have to fill or inner pain or inner vacuousness with all the consumption or the, the endless drivenness of us of all of us we're all hooked into this so, so this pri- even more perhaps than, than ever before these words of the Buddha echoing through time and space uh, are pertinent for us to learn to simplify in our hearts, to learn to appreciate through that process, appreciate the preciousness of what is here, not to to keep having to look for the special thing, to learn to die so that we may really live, to allow what needs to die to die so that life can carry us and it's mysterious in its um, fruitful way. So I'd like to finish with some um, words from the Khoisan, the Bushmen, in whose lands we are embraced here, living in these mountains for so many 30,000 odd years or so more in uh, some sort of harmony with the forces of nature here with leaving very little footprint
I feel that tonight I shall die, for I am wounded by an arrow, and the wound is telling me that I will die. The bite of the wound is fierce, and the mouth of the wound does not heal, but it swells and throbs, so my flesh aches, and I burn with pain and feel my heart falling. I know I shall not see the break of another day, for my heart feels I am to die, and I cannot bear to think of the smell of springbok. But as for you, you must look after the children. You must keep them with you. You must keep them beside you. You must not take your eye from them. You must not give them away to strangers. You must keep a good fire so that the cold does not kill them. And though I will be dead, I will think of you and the children. I will still think of you and wonder whether you are warm and have food. I shall not speak to you again. I shall not speak to you in the darkness of the night. But you shall fetch wood and make up a fire and sit beside me and watch over me and take care of me as I writhe by the fire. For the time of death has come and the time for talking is over. I speak to you, holding up your heart so that you may understand. Told by Corbel. And then my commentary. Time, with relentless harvesting, your precious human life is short. As all life gathers proof of our faith through the pilgrimage of the night that tests the ground of our being, so we may know the measure of courage and the wellspring of our heart from which we sip nectar. Just as the brown striped bug drinks from the white elderflower and the orange thin-winged butterfly skips through ochre grasses and the grey knowing wharves move through cold white snow and the rhinos through dry bush felt go as lions stalk impala along the river slow slow is the earth's rhythm deep and unfathomable in our collective soul the rhythm of the day's tick-tock winding through the web of our connection of internet consumption where we search what we hope to know because to truly know is to not know and to not know is so much evidence of where faith can go this is the ninth vow of the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness. When the rocks get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal tree of enlightenment growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots, and all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By serving all beings, by serving this great earth, by pouring the waters of living, gentle and fierce compassion, together we will embody the flowers and fruits of our true awakening 
And even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, we will still accord with this our deepest heart, endlessly, continuously, in thought after thought, without cease, our body, speech and mind, never weary of this service. So says our true heart. Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhisvaha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.